is a Momentum Media production. Inside Commercial Property with Rethink Investing. Australia's largest and most comprehensive podcast covering all things commercial investing. Well, good day, Gianna Sultan here. Welcome to Inside Commercial Property with uh, Rethink Investing. I want my month talking about commercial property. I am a commercial property investor. I'm thinking more about commercial property investment as the days go by. Uh, I've been pretty vocal in a lot of commentary around uh, commercial and just investing in general over the last period of time as uh, Australia's grappled with all these forces which are most of it out of its control. Inflation, pandemics, rising rates, all these type of issues is really shaping and framing the way in which people are investing in property. And Commercial property was the darling of uh, investors probably a year or so ago, and maybe less so now um, as uh, those commercial investors which are leveraged have uh, worked out that they're not getting as much money back every single month when they reconcile their P&Ls. But uh, that said, uh, commercial property is still performing pretty well, uh, irrespective of of how you normally get into it. You're just going to make the right call. Some markets are better than others. Some asset classes are better than others. Um, we like to cover that on this particular podcast. and. Fortunately, you haven't got a chancellor like me muddling their way through this podcast. I know a little bit about podcasting. I don't know a lot about commercial investing, but my co-host, Scott O'Neill, who's the Managing Director of Rethink Investing, knows a lot more than I do. He joins me in the studio. Scott, how are you going? Well? G'day, Phil. Yeah, good, mate. Yourself? I am pretty good. Um, just looking at your email signature, and it's it's big and it's bold, and uh, and. <laughs> I guess it goes with your growing business. How, mate, I'm seeing you in the papers and stuff, and you're all over the joint. This this business is booming. What you must be doing something right. What's happening? Yeah, look, it's every sort of month. It sort of just creeps forward a little bit. So it's not um, there's no sort of giant jolt ahead. But it, yeah, the momentum's really good. The business is growing. The product, commercial property, it is getting more mainstream focus, and we are collecting and benefiting from that, no doubt. And like you said, like things like the interest rates and that. It's not as good for the returns for our investors, but you know it, it is a relatively short-term problem, and the investors are quite sophisticated in this space. Like you're not going to be buying, you know, an expensive commercial property if you're fragile to the point where the next six months will make or break you. So they are investing for the long term, and and yet, look, our, our volumes are up. Like we, you know, as as we speak in this August month, like we've sort of got about eighty million under contract this month which is well up from our average about 50 mil. So the volumes are very large and yeah, like we've got to build a business around that to support it. So we've been putting a really big effort in hiring people on the ground. So local connections in markets, like we've got a guy in Tasmania now, we've got, we're looking into, you know, we've got Melbourne, we've got multiple people down there. We've got someone in Perth now, half a dozen up in Brisbane, you know, so there's about sort of 50 odd of us around the country now and yeah we're just working on getting more detailed with due diligence and yeah just look the real trick is getting access to stock and that's what we're the mm. best at in this country like we get good volumes coming through and we have to reject huge amounts of done properties but yeah but that's the trick if you've got a good product and you can avoid the bad ones that's really the basis of growth i feel yeah and that's the secret right it's uh you know, was it the John West rejecting those good fish with the Chinook salmons? You know, I'm sure it's a good fish for someone else, but not for uh, not for rethink investing clients. But that, you know, the point you make is, and you know, to my earlier uh, comments, um, commercial investing it's it's been around for 
eons. Uh, residential gets most of the the focus and the uh, the bandwidth, but you know our conversations over many years now is that you know most sophisticated resi investors always end up becoming commercial investors and probably sit there and think, why didn't they do that sooner than what they did? And I absolutely fall into that bucket. When I look at my portfolio, um, the commercial stuff's still positive, irrespective of all the interest rates that's been happening. Whereas uh, I'd have to look hard to find a positively geared property these days in my portfolio. So that's just really the, the, the market we operate within. But the question I've got is, is there more commercial investors in the market today than what there were a couple of years ago? So is the pool of investors getting bigger, but the pie is essentially staying the same size and therein lies, you know, opportunities and, and threats to organizations like yours, right? Because you've got more people wanting good properties. But, you know, to your point, you you sort of got to say no to a lot of dud dud assets. It's making yeah. your life hard, mate. You you, know, you do a podcast like this telling all the benefits of commercial property and then you set yourself up for, for headaches. Yeah, look, and it's a great point. Like there is without a doubt more demand than there ever has been. Like we are a stock driven, we've said it many times, we're stock dependent. That's our limiting factor in growth and revenue from business. Like We've got clients, but there's not enough good properties. And one of the criticisms we get from clients is our waiting periods, particularly in the more affordable price points. Like we've had to close our doors multiple times over the years for, you know, up to three, four month stints at a time, just not letting clients in because we'll only disappoint them with waiting periods. Like it's not as bad now, but you know, like for a good sub million dollar property, you can wait six months, sometimes longer. And doesn't mean they're not out there and it's like we get we get no i'd probably look over 200 sub million dollar properties a month and out of that we might buy a handful of them for clients like there's a lot of garbage out there and and we're not going to sacrifice on yields like say some of our competitors will they'll go and buy stuff into the low five percent and i'm just like well that's not solving the problem the client initially sold or signed up for so we'd rather creative waiting list like you said the john west analogy is one we sort of use like it's better to have better quality and and someone wait a bit longer especially in a market like this because it's moving sideways there's not rapid growth like there was 12 months ago now some markets are declining Um, it's a good time to take your time and just wait for that what right property the guys that have larger budgets you're going to get the best deals you've seen in two three years because interest rates have caused better buying conditions at that range and you know, the competition is a little bit thinner, but there is slightly more stock on that market. And that stock will change once interest rates eventually start coming down. The power dynamic will go back to the sellers quickly. And then the best buying days are behind us. So we've got a period before that happens, which is great from, a, I guess, from a client and business perspective. But, but yeah, we're seeing yields hold their range. The demand is really propping prices up and it will continue to do so. There's some sectors of the market which will hurt more than others. You know, like you're you you're probably a you know, your fund manager level in the office space is the famous one. It's in the AFR every week at the moment where there's twenty percent plus price falls. But good quality industrials holding its value. Good quality retail, same deal, and medical and all that. It's the growth prospects are strong. So people are, are paying premiums still and as we get closer to the eventual interest rate drop, people will then start pricing that in and yeah, prices will go up. Mm. Well, you make a good point. It's a good time to take your time. And I reckon it's pretty sage. A lot of probably investors in too much of a rush sometimes. So I call it strategic patience, right? Is just if you do the right stuff and then just wait, typically the right outcome will appear 
at the right time. I think too many people try and orchestrate or accelerate that unnecessarily and therefore don't get the outcome that they want. But we haven't done it for a little while, Scott. We've been sort of quite down in tactical type level stuff recently. Just to get a bit of a market update from you because we're probably at or very, very close to the terminal interest rate. It, it might go up a little bit. We've got a, a rate announcement happening shortly. And depending who you talk to, some banks are now saying it's at the top. Some are still pricing into more. Uh, 25 point basis point rises, which will have impact on commercial lending. And that's just reality of it. But, you know, I think the mail is that uh, rates will start dropping again at the back end of 2024. And we've seen unemployment rate is, is starting to go up, which is what they've wanted to try and calibrate more of a, some more equilibrium in, in the economy. Uh, inflation is already starting to come back. So things are starting to normalize. So things going to get to some time before we get to, um, the target band of two to three percent. However, things are moving in the right direction. So I think everyone would benefit from recalibrating their attitude towards commercial property. If you had to define, you know, with a view of a state of the market, and we'll talk about that for a little while, Scott, but then I just really want to just drill down with you and a bit of a reminder, bit 101 for those people who've been tuning in for some time. It's nice to, to refresh, you know, where you can tactically really start creating value in your portfolio. And where can you get that equity uplift? How can you create equity and do that really well? And some of those common strategies for, um, you know, just getting every drop out of your portfolio that you can do that often you might not be doing. But let's start with the state of the market. Scott, are you happy with where things are? Or are you got any major concerns? Are you, are you lying awake in bed at night sort of worried that you're going to blow all your dough personally and, and you're pretty much the custodian of the decision making for many of your clients? It's a big responsibility. Yeah, great question. Look, I'm notoriously calm and collected with with all this type of stuff, and this market is a perfect example of why you should be as well. Like, I'll give you some stats. So the the latest JLL reports have come out, sort of you know showing all the baseline net yields around the country, because there's all this talk. Like, you look at the media, and you know, and someone who doesn't know commercial property, they go, "Oh, the vacancies, uh, you know, they're gonna they're always at every corner," and then. What's the other myth? Like every, you know, Amazon's here, all retail's dead, like all that kind of stuff. They they throw those blanket comments out, but reality is on the ground. Things are very steady and, and quite strong. And to back that up, like if you look at the national weighted average yield for retail, it's expanded from five point five seven to five point seven. About a year and a half ago, it was in the the low five. So that's not a big yield decompression. Rents have been increasing in that time. They've been steady in the last quarter, but by and large, retail is holding its value and rents are basically moving sideways. They are declining in CBD markets. So, you know, it's important to distinguish the different types of retail. Big box retail is having the best rental growth. Neighborhood shopping centers, probably second to that. And then you've got your strip mall and your, you know, those kind of more individual stuff suffering a little bit because their proximity to the, the cities and stuff like that. But by and large, they've done well outside of COVID. Retail spending's up 9% in the quarter too. So, you know, all this inflation has created better profit margins for a lot of businesses as well. Like anecdotally over in Europe as well, they've all increased their prices on every single type of asset over here. And it's not because their costs have gone up in most cases. It's because it's a good excuse to raise your prices. So, you know, everything from car washes to cocktail price, everything's gone up like, you know, 20, 30% over here because they're all copying each other and it's the customers accept it. And that's kind of creating this self-fulfilling prophecy of, you know, inflation. And um, retail is benefiting from an increase 
profit margin. And and that's not bad for the long term, but steady as she goes in retails, the summary there, office is the famous one where they've got book valuations at the higher level, well under the current prices due to lack of sales. There's a long-term problem there. We all know it. The, the value of office space, it's not going to be worth as much as it once was. But interestingly, the average yield in the country, this is every capital city, is 5.83%. But the figure which killed this is there's a 14.4% headline vacancy rate. Despite that, rents grew 1.1% in the last quarter. So you can see they're kind of kicking the can up the road there. That vacancy rate shouldn't be probably, uh, you know, it's got to be under 10% for the office market. And there's supply coming on, the secondary stock in that market will struggle to sell. There's going to be a point where It'll devalue enough to become in line with residential prices, and they'll gut the thing out and turn them into, you know, basically apartments. Um, but you know, office is worth more per square meter than an apartment. So there is a, you know, there's a moment in time that's going to have to, yeah, there won't be transactions until the residential guys see value, or they'll just refurb the property and make it more of a, an A grade offering, and then people will occupy it. So there's the fund managers are going to have to make lots of difficult and costly decisions in that space so that's a moving target there but industrial industrial expanded their average yield from 4.8 percent so you may notice that's the lowest yield in the country due to the strength and now it's 5.08 so yields are still very tight in, in industrial and the real key figure here is in the last 12 months rents have grown nationally 22.8 percent so that's enormous and the reason this is not going to slow up is there's there's genuine issues with supply. The demand is still there. It's not going to you know slow down for years because councils are basically not releasing enough industrial land. These planning risks are uh, flowing down into the the developed level where they can't stack up feasibility studies for a lot of these upcoming industrial projects. So especially in kind of inner city areas, no one's going to release large plots of industrial land without there being pushed back or it's already industrial you know so that's a sort of long-term problem i feel in this country we don't have enough industrial land and good quality well-located industrial land it's going to attract that rental growth for the medium term and the only thing that will slow that down is if they release a lot more property and uh maybe the economy takes a big hit at the same time that it will take a lot to shake that market Mm. Um, but yields are lower so you've got to cop that on the way in yeah, industrial as a, a subclass asset sector within commercial property, I think, you know, we've been chatting about it ever since the pandemic. We kicked this podcast off during the pandemic and we've been very bullish on industrial assets and we continue to be. You're seeing on these sort of arterial feeder roads in and out of major capital cities, they're rezoning and releasing a lot of industrial land. And I think that's going to be a big driver. And even though there is still, you know, within the city areas, it's it's pretty hard to get stuff rezoned in industrial. So it's moving out of the fringes that remain strong. But I got a call, yeah, you know, sometimes these numbers, you know, and you've got to be careful with it. Maybe your view on it as well, Scott. I eye these numbers with a certain degree of suspicion. And and maybe that's just because I'm just a, a inherently just a journalist who doesn't really believe always what I hear. But when I think of sort of the office market, it's so easy to manipulate the numbers in commercial property and having been, you know, on both sides of uh, commercial lease negotiations, you know, claiming, a, I think you said a 1% rise in, in rent in the office market, like that's at the headline rate, you know, but there are so yeah. many fancy, funny, 
you know, little things in the background, little side deeds and and whatnot around incentives and and et cetera, where you never actually get a real picture of what the 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 net sort of um square meter rate is, uh, because it's never really yep. they're not connected in with the lease. They're always sort of adjacent to. And this is why I put a big question mark over a lot of these numbers, because I just go, that might be the case on a, you know, on a, a face rent value. But once you get into the nitty-gritty of, of pulling apart incentives, of which are huge at the moment, I don't know what you're hearing, but huge in the office markets, those numbers just I don't think are going to stand up. Is that just me just being an idiot and no, no. not really understanding it? You're 100% right. So incentives are elevated right now in the office market, which is sort of why I made that comment. There's They're kicking the can up the road a little bit mm-hmm. in that market. So the vacancy rate, the higher that gets, the more you've got to offer incentives. So, you know, it might be a 10%, 15% incentive in industrial. You could be 30, 40% of the lease as an incentive. So, and that's for office. And retail is pretty, pretty tight as well. Like it's not nowhere near office. Like it's more to do with fit outs and stuff like that. It's a little bit more um, case by case with that example because the variations are so great. But office is, going to be affected by larger incentives and effectively what that does is it knocks off purchase pricing power like when you sell a property they'll generally pay out an incentive that's standard practice so if you're buying a 10 million dollar property there might be an outstanding incentive of 500 grand they've got to pay it out to you as cash at settlement so they've kind of lost it off their purchase price but it's fed into the system to create a face rent and uh Yes, that's how they come to those numbers. So it's it's funny accounting. It's been done since the dawn of time. I don't like incentives, but I see him working on small examples where you can push rents up and get longer leases. But when the whole asset or whole industry is backed by it, then, you know, it you just can't, you, know, you can't change, if, you know, you might not like the game. You can try and start a new game, but... um. Uh, if you want to operate in that office environment, and, and on that basis also, if you buy like a strated, if you buy a building with multiple tenancies in it, you need to pay out the remaining incentive to the tenant as well, because you know if they're breaking lease and stuff, you've got to be compensated for it. It's it's yep. a pricey business, and if you've got multiple tenancies in a building, you've got to really plan your exits pretty smartly in order to get it right. So you know that's just a big buyable air to anyone who's operating in that space. Yeah, exactly. And all the more reason you've got to be up to speed with commercial property. There's just a lot more moving parts and it's the reason we don't come across as many people in this space. You know, it is complicated. You've got to understand the laws. You've got to be, you know, you've got to be really drilled in or dialed in rather into the the economy as well because you've got to, it's not just worrying about vacancy rates or, you know, where the next infrastructure project is for people to live. It's the whole economy as a general. Mm. Yeah. If you get it wrong, the risks are higher. That's why the returns are higher. Yeah, and that's where you want to be chasing, but you want to do it with uh, through the lens of sensibility and it, people do get it wrong in this space. So, but, you know, the, people do a lot of Hail Marys and they do pretty well in commercial, but you must have seen a lot of people blow their dough, right? Yeah, look, I've mentioned in the previous podcast, the way I see most people blow their dough, which isn't happening as much now, is they don't know how to price a commercial investment. They'll see mm. a KFC, fall in love with it, and buy it at a 2 3% yield. You know, like they're effectively paying, in my opinion, double what it's really worth. So, you know, if you're buying a $3 million asset for 6 mil, you know, that's pretty silly. There's a lot of people that don't care about losing money, and this is context you've got to throw into this market this is where people with 
endless amounts of money come to as well. Like, you know, like the family offices, the people that just, they they don't know what to do with their money. They'll just plonk it into a $5 million asset. Like that doesn't happen in the blue collar houses because everyone's sensitive to the interest rates. Everyone's kind of, you know, maxed out their deposit to leverage as much as they can because that's the strategy. Commercial, it's not so much that. This is where you basically drop large sums of money. You know, obviously the people getting to that high net worth status will follow the same rules as residential, leverage as much as you can, go for the best return you can. Like that's how we want to invest and how we invest at Rethink. But there is another spectrum of buyers out there that don't care for that. They just want to park money up and don't want to think about it for 30 years and pass it to their kids. Mm-hmm. We don't compete with those. We would love them as clients because we could get a much better returns, but it's a space that it surprises how many of these guys are out there and, you know. Yeah, it, it just, you know, scratch the surface and there's plenty of rich families around and these are sort of generational wealth that just gets keeps recycled down and through and and, they, sure. and for those that of you that know, family office is just, you know, it's it's where investments are pulled and uh, they have someone that typically makes those investment decisions for them. But, you know, most family offices sit inside of, more traditional investment houses, right? Which aren't really property orientated. And, you know, you don't always get the strength of people that really know what they're doing with commercial property. Sometimes, and I'm generalizing sometimes in some of these family offices, they're very comfortable operating in around uh, equities and bonds and, you know, some of those other financial instruments, but they often overlook property. So, you know, putting in cash into the commercial property, in, which is silly money, you probably get a much better return. Maybe they should be using buyer's agents, mate. Not, did you ever get calls from family officers saying, look, this is outside of our skill set? Can you do the commercial property bit for us? Oh, yeah. We, we work with family offices quite often. It's mm. probably one of our growth markets of the last, particularly last two years. So, fair few South Africans at the moment, Singaporeans, a few from Korea, Japan. Like, so it's, it's those kind of low yielding or higher risk countries that are now seeing Australia as a really good place to invest. We are, globally recognized as a safe haven and our yields mm. are good compared to the safety it offers. So that will attract institutional money long-term, particularly from the Asian countries because we just offer better returns. And um, you look at what's happening in, say, China and you know the, the, the risk that that market has in terms of like the economy with their housing market at the moment, there's going to be more money flow out very quickly if they can get it out in time. And Australia will collect a lot of that. South Africa is a market where it's got risk, as you could imagine. Like it's just a instable compared to Australia, it's not as stable, and the growth is not as banked in. So there's a number of those guys coming over. So yeah, watch this space. The foreign money will keep coming, and yeah. commercial. Well, that's the right question then about saying a family officers that uh, you know to actually have a you know a focused discipline that is commercial investment, and you know this being a, a market update or state of the market, we sort of. You spoke through those different uh, asset classes by way of industrial and retail and and the office market, but there's a lot more to the market than just those performance of those things. It's all the macro and microeconomic factors facing it. We spoke about interest rates, et cetera. The global forces shaping the Australian property market, commercial market, any major concerns there, you know, noting that Australia and its spot in the world, particularly within, you know, with within Asia, uh, we're an Asian nation. Um, it should be still flight to the safety of Australian real estate. Any significant global international factors which do you think will be insurmountable headwinds for Australian commercial property? Look, the one in the big background is always going to be if there is a war, you know, whether it's the China-Taiwan scenario, like that will will hurt. 
if that mm. scenario eventuates, just because it involves China, it, the location is close. You know, you look back at history, what wars do, it, it's not good for the economy and, and government will prioritise spending in certain locations, but that could be good for some sectors of the market, like, you know, the likes of, say, Townsville we spoke about, you know, if they increase defence spending up there, that's good for them. Down in South Australia, there's plenty going on down there. So, yeah, like, I think you'll see certain markets really benefit from that section and then others just in, I guess, the macro side of things, people will spend less because of the fear. Yeah, so look, outside of those kind of black swan events, there's a good story for Australia, like the immigration side versus what they're building is there's a, I guess the ratios are off and that will benefit property owners. They're not building enough of anything, yet they're letting a lot of people in. Um, so politically, that will cause pressure to whoever's in power. But yeah, you've got to build more to support the, the staff or the amount of people coming to this country. And, and that's probably, that'll wash through more strongly than say what the interest rate's doing this next month or two like there's a good medium term benefit that that'll bring to the country and yeah outside of a you know a large recession like what would trigger it you know there's plenty of things that could but by and large the economy is going okay you know it's just yeah. people are feeling the pinch there's less free cash flow in the market so from a commercial perspective it is a cash flow focused asset so people that need cash flow there's still nowhere better to get it without taking great risk. So I think that will, you know, it'll hold the right asset classes through in this next period. Yeah. If you asked me four months ago, I, I probably would have said that the chance of a recession was likely. I'm starting to change my opinion uh, on that. You know, it's softer than where I think everyone would like at the economy right now, but are we going to go that far? I'm not too sure now. Well, what's your views? Do you think the Australia will sort of spiral into a, into a recession or do you think it'll be averted? I personally think it'll be averted unless there's, yeah, some kind of new shock, but like they're going to, like inflation's coming down. Like there's, if interest rates went up another two or three, yeah, that would yeah, yeah. push a lot of businesses to the brink. But because the, I guess the chats out of that side of the, the fence are now saying we're probably at the terminal rate, that I think that will mean there's no recession. But if, yeah, for some reason the inflation spikes again and, we have to push rates up and that'll push of it'll push the lower and middle class under and that's really not good for the economy like these guys that have bought their first home you know that's who's getting punished and then the renters are getting punished because everyone's mm -hmm. pushing their costs down to the tenants so it's creating a real social issue these interest rates like the rich are fine you know they've got cash assets and their, their cash flows are fine so you know it's hurting the wrong part of the economy in my opinion like you want to protect those who are trying to, you know, make a thing for themselves, get ahead, and and the incentives aren't really there. And especially with all the stuff with tenant reforms and stuff like that, it's really made residential investing less attractive, and that's going to make a case for not investing in residential as well, which means less rentals. You know, there's going to be a housing crisis. There has to be, you know. There, there's, oh, yeah, there's there is already, you know. And we've got to be really careful as a nation about what we choose to prioritise and emphasise. And when you look at that and consider that, Scott, you've got certain parts of the establishment trying to get these tenant reforms, right? But I think there is real lack of appreciation of exactly who owns all the investable investment properties in Australia. They're mum and dad investors. I think 94% of all investment properties in Australia are owned or, or properties for rent are owned by mum and dad investors of inverted commerce. So, you know, structurally we need to be, you know, we need to have a 
sense of confidence that this is the right structure for us. And I can't see that changing because this is the way the government structured it, the way the ATO applies it, and our banking sector is built off the back of it. So we can't have our cake and eat it too. If we want to be a, a market-driven economy, there needs to be an acceptance that interest rates are going to go up and down. And that's been very hard for a lot of people to to actually go, what, interest rates aren't always at 2%? No, it can't be like that. Like, you know, grow up. That's the way it is. And interest rates were pretty much at the average levels of right now. But the same acceptance needs to be having at the tenant side of things, you know, that rent's going to go up. That's the way it is. Um, So, you know, sensible conversations around that is absolutely imperative. But you know, we need to make sure, to your point, that those more vulnerable parts of the Australian economy, those people who are the heartbeat of the nation, the workforce of this nation, don't take all the heat from the economic cycle that we're in right now. And that's a big criticism that's taking place right now. I was only sort of whinging yep. to a mate the other day. I was expecting my power bill to go down and my my rents to stay low when we went to the poll last time. That certainly hasn't been the case. Um, this is not a political podcast by any means, but that's hurting sort of you know, the heartbeat of Australia, you know, it's not the wealthy people who, the sophisticated wealthy people who can buttress and manoeuvre and do whatever. So this is the issue we're in right now. But back to commercial property, well, you know, we made the point when we did our first podcast, Scott, that commercial property is inherently connected in with Australian business because Australian businesses rent commercial property. And if Australian business is faltering, that means commercial property will falter. If Australian businesses are faltering, it's usually because Australians are faltering because they don't have the, the dollars in their back pocket to be able to do what they were doing once upon a time or what they want to be doing. So it's very much a cyclical thing. So, you know, commercial property is is a big part of this ecosystem. Um, whether or not you shouldn't be considering commercial property as an investment class right now, well, to the point you made beforehand, it's a what was it? It's a good time. What is a good time to to wait time or I can't remember what you said beforehand. Yeah. Deal quality is essential. So you like there is there's still a lot of urgency for investors out there to buy because people that have cash want to deploy it. And there is the threat of interest rates eventually. And I use the word threat. When it drops, it's a threat to prices because prices will go up. The yield compression will begin again. We're in a yield decompressing phase. So effectively, prices are dropping versus the rents. That's the best time to buy. If rents are compressing, it means more competition. You're fighting. It's it's just like a you know an auction clearance rate of over eighty percent. That's that's the type of what more scenario. people what, more people out there means bad for buyers. Correct. Yeah. yeah, and the supply is so low as well. So people that are like the owners that aren't getting their prices they want, they simply hold because they can. And they're, you know, where what else are they going to do with their money? That's sort of the scenario that comes up. So stocks low, buyers are there. But yeah, you've got to still get a good deal in this market because you know, you're know you not going to be making huge cash flow on the asset, especially if you're lending 70 to 80% uh, or you've refinanced your house and you're doing a 100% loan, which is common. There is a need to get a higher yield and I think you've got to, to stick to it. But if you are sort of uh, you know lucky enough to be quite liquid with cash, it is a very good time to buy and particularly those are sort of that plus $2 million range. You are you're getting a considerably better deal than you were 12 months ago. And that's that's why our volumes are up because we're just getting better deals. So it's easier for clients to say yes because the numbers stack up. But yeah, to my point, if you're waiting and your budget's 700 grand, it takes time to get that right and that's okay. You know, you don't need to go off and look online and then buy something and sacrifice on the yield and quality and age and all that kind of stuff because that's what people do. And then um, 
then they're stuck with that asset. It'll take you two, three years just to kind of recoup the losses that you incurred on paying too much. So there's 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 benefit in waiting at different price points. Mm. Let's have a chat about that. Let's we'll go to a quick break. Stay with us. Uh, back in a moment. Are you finding this podcast enjoyable but looking to enhance your commercial education? Well, we've created an innovative online course that offers comprehensive content. With over 50 lessons available on demand, you can delve deeper into the subject matter. Additionally, you will gain exclusive access to the valuable online community where you can connect with industry experts. For more information, please visit rethinkcommercialeducation.com.au. Welcome back. Scott, for those people who have commercial property, um, whether they've been sitting on one asset for a long time or recently, or they've got a large commercial portfolio, you should always be thinking about how you can extract the maximum value from that. And I think a lot of people sort of some, sometimes forget. They just, you know, commercial property in particular, you know, I always say, people say, oh, property is a great asset class because it's passive. I go, no, it's not. If you're a residential, you know, property investor, you're in, you know, you're, you're an active investor. That said, it's easy to be a passive commercial investor. There's there's a lot less moving parts, right? Like purely because of the way it's it's constructed, you don't need to be dealing with your property manager on a daily basis for issues and problems. It's all covered, it's all sorted. You can be very passive. But if you are an active investor, you can actually extract a lot of value out of your commercial property or commercial property portfolio if you're willing to do the hard work and spend the time and the focus on it. And I know you sort of have a bit of a you know, a process, a methodology for making sure you can maximise that value, seven steps, Scott. And, and I know I'm conscious of time, but I might just get you to quickly run through them, just a bit of a refresher uh, for everyone about how do you actually extract greater value when you're building or sort of growing your commercial property portfolio? Okay. So our seven, we've got seven main steps to increase value because once you've bought the property, you want to drill down into whatever asset class you've got to see how you can extract that equity because- you know, a big part of what I do and Rethink does is we want to sort of build portfolios. It's not just here is one property, see you later. So, you know, that's why capital growth is so important for us. It's not just the cash flow. That's just one small part. But so one example, this is the most common way of adding value is through rental increases. Very basic. You know, you buy something that's kind of under rented and you've got to be very careful with rental increases because you've got to compare like for like assets. So, you know, one we're dealing with at the moment, it's ground floor retail office type thing. So it could be a real estate agency or whatever. If you look at the square meter rates on the surface, it may look like it's at market because all the stuff three to four floors up are paying a similar rent, but ground floor locations are a premium. And if you know that, then you can, because there's just more tenants to choose from, it's got advertising benefits for the tenant. You could push the rents up significantly, like it could be 30, 40% without others seeing it. So you really got to drill down into the investment, but high level things like, like industrial, like I mentioned, twenty two point eight percent. That's the average lift in in prime rents in the, across the country. So, you know, an example: one of my clients, he had a you know an older warehouse in Brisbane. The, the initial rent was seventy nine thousand, and through a stroke of a pen, he renegotiated a three year lease at one hundred and five thousand. So that added 26,000 to the income. So how does that increase the value? Well, it's the cap rate of that market is 6%. So that 26,000 divided by 0.06 equals 434,000. And that was then taken to a valuer, extracted as equity, and we're looking for the next property. A very simple, 
no risk, same tenant. We offered him three months free rent. So, you know, I was just talking to the client throughout this process. The tenant pushed back. So this is where you got to be a bit strategic. Like every tenant is going to say the same thing. That's ridiculous, not paying it. I'm going to move. Be ready for that conversation. And we were, we had the spreadsheet showing all the comparables and you can't argue with that if they're, you know, just look at the spreadsheet, go look at the properties if you want. This is what the rent is and they'll huff and puff and eventually they'll just meet the market. That's probably the most aggressive way of doing it. The other way I like sort of doing it is let your property manager come to your tenant earlier on in the piece and kind of act like they're acting in the tenant's favour. So they might just say, look, I haven't got approval from the owner. What if you took your lease negotiation early? I might be able to sling you some free month, you know, a few months rent free. And that make it the tenant's idea. And then you know where they're at. And that's a really good way of kind of starting that conversation without showing your driving it. Because every owner wants a longer lease and higher rent. But you want to sound out if this tenant is is keen to start with. And that brings me to point two. Another value increase is lengthening the, the lease. So if you turn a one-year lease into a 10-year lease, it's obviously going to have an impact on the value because the perceived value to investors is a great secured asset. So there's more income banked in. An IOU essentially is, is all a lease is. Tenant owes you more money. The bank will lend to you not, like better, so you might get an advantage on your home loan. There's a lot of benefits to a longer lease. And over the years, I've, I've kind of compared many th- like thousands of deals, what that actual lease does to your value. So I'm going to use real rough numbers because it has an inverse relationship to the yield. So let's use a case study. If you buy a million dollar property and the yield's 8%, with that, that's vacant, that you'd pay 8% on the market rent. If there's a three-year lease, you'd probably pay 1.06 mil, which would be a 7.5 net yield. There's about a 3% inverse relationship along with the lease, the more value it adds to your property. So let's fast forward to a 10-year lease. You would be paying probably one. 0.34 million for that, which is a 34% increase in value. So it's like a compounding 3%. And that yield would be only 5.95. So you've t- like that's the advantage. And a lot of, I guess, active investors do this. They'll go find a vacant property, find someone who will sign a 10-year lease, and then they increase the value by 34% minus incentives. So it's a very good strategy, and that's why things like childcare sell at tight yields. Like if you've got a 15-year lease, you might be buying that at a 5% yield. So, you know, 56% difference in price if you use that same inverse relationship. So, it's very important to get a long lease for a valuer, but don't lock yourself into a low rent for a long period of time either because long leases can trap you as well. So, you know, right now, industrial properties, you don't want a 10-year lease because you're going to fall behind the market for 10 years. So... Yeah, very uh, interesting setup. But both those first two strategies just require better management. So, you know, you've got to do cosmetic renovations, signage opportunities. Like, you know, if you've got a shopping center, like maybe do a website for them. Like, you've got to be active. You've got to show you're doing something rather than just asking for money. And that really helps those conversations on those first two. And a lot of that is just time, energy, and effort, right? Like, you know, there's not a huge capital outlay. It's just about being sensible and smart and spending your time on that. Exactly. Yeah. And um, this is a weekly event type of thing. So these value adds work. Uh, you know, you don't only want to think about value adds because that's another trap. If you start just going, I need to buy anything at a low yield just because I, I can see some upside, then you just, you know, you've been a bit one sided and that's, and 
most good investors look at the whole picture rather than one part of the picture. So how else can you um, accelerate or gain upside on your portfolio? So improving tenancy mix is, is the other one. So this is probably more reserved for your larger investors. So, you know, I'd, I'd probably say over $3 million in purchase price. You might have a multi-tenant investment. Good example is like we're looking at a deal for a client. It's like a little homemaker center and it's got non-branded tenants in there, like a gym that we have, like a local gym, a, you know, a grocer, local grocer. Like it's got all these sort of B-grade tenants in it. The client's going to go in there. We already know that it's a great location. It's going to really attract national businesses, but the previous owner self-managed the deal, didn't put much effort into attracting the right tenants. So there's a mishmash of tenants. So it doesn't look good day one, but if we can attract those big branded tenants, they'll all start flowing in and there's a significant uplift there because you're going to sell it or revalue it at a lower yield because the perceived risk of a, you know, an ASX listed tenant is lower than a local gym. So people will pay more for the same rent. So that's a Again, you're not building anything. You're just basically changing the, you know, the security and the asset. And that's the biggest difference with residential to commercial with value adds. If you increase the security, you increase the value. Like, you know, outside of like residential, like you don't really care who the tenant is. You know, like you're not going to pay 30% more if the tenant's the doctor versus a mechanic. Like it doesn't matter. Like the rent is the rent. And that's one of the differences. Renovating properties is sort of, you know, I've always worked out you normally get two to three times the money you spend. So if you refurbish, gut properties out, you're like it's got kind of like a lot of benefits that you like you know you wouldn't really think of at the start. Like you, you'll attract a better tenant if you prepare your vacant property better. Um, you know, like if you've got a nice white palette, brand new windows, all that kind of stuff, it's going to be better than leaving stickers and you know blue and black paint from the last tenant. Like it's just going to attract a different level of tenant. And you'll fill it faster, you might get more rent for it. So renovating is generally a pretty good play with your property, but always renovate for the tenant's benefit. Um, it's Tenant in mind is, is the key, otherwise you're going to blow your dough. The next few value adds are all to do with increasing the net lettable area and increasing the value of that lettable area too. So developing is the obvious one. So one thing we're seeing people do a lot in this market is develop by, you know, using a DA to sort of put some uh, extra footprint on the property. So you might have some free land. Good thing with commercial property, like let's, you can actually, sometimes there's no, like zero setbacks on the building and the boundary. So you can fill out any little gap depending on the council, maximizing the floor space. You know, we're looking at a deal for a client today. It would have cost, you know, it was a 5,000 square meter add on to a property. So it's a larger deal again, but there is a, you'd probably allow for 1,800 a square meter to build that. So, you know, what's that? Nine million. And then the end value of that at a 6% cap rate was about 14. A pretty good profit margin. You know, we haven't, you know, that's high level. There's obviously a little holding costs and stuff like that you'll need to factor in, but building can be very lucrative if you get the right asset and you're not paying overs for it. So it goes back to the buying and the location, of course, but, um, Something that a lot of people don't know, but it's starting to come up more is change of use. So if you go into those grey fringe areas, and what a grey fringe area is, residential near like existing commercial. So the you know classic one is houses near industrial sites. You know that could sort of swing either way if you apply for a change of use to council, and um, depending on 
what the demands are of that local community that could significantly change the value. That's a low percentage play. It's something that a lot of investors dream to do and not many will ever pull off. But if you are on a fringe area, just always think about that. Like if you're at that boundary and you can see a house or you can see a high rise or you can see a shed, you know, those can swing either direction depending on the governments at the time. So, yeah, we've seen a bit of that in Alexandra, as we've mentioned. Mm. Strata titling. So, this is something we're getting pretty big with at the moment. So, I love strata titling because it's like you get developer margins without developing. So, you're basically splitting up a big pie into little pieces. A good example was in Brisbane, my client purchased an asset for 4.5 mil seven months ago and he ended up strata tiling it and selling it for 5.96 mil. 5.96, yes. So, pretty good margin. He's had to pay stamp duty on that and then selling agent costs. So, there's probably about half a mil in those costs or about 400 all up, but a pretty big profit margin. So, doing very little other so than- So, what, what did he buy it and what did he sell it? 4.5 and sold at 5.96. Okay. Minus costs. Do you have to spend a lot of money in terms of like electrical and mechanical and, and all that sort of stuff? Circa 50,000 all up. At all. And so not much. And it's because you're not changing the walls of the walls. They're, they're fireproofed. That existing infrastructure in there. Like it was really just a lot of their money they spent on just tidying up gardens and stuff like that. And obviously their, their town planning and council paperwork and their fees. But yeah, very low impact scenario and and we identified that as really good upside with that deal because I always think about the end product. We've got so many people desperate for small warehouses and there's someone selling seven of them in a row. Like why didn't the owner think to sell them seven times? You know, like yeah. there's a missed opportunity. Yeah. And the benefit of the reason the value goes up is you're selling to a more competitive part of the market. So you're buying at four point five less buyers, selling at, you know, under a mill, lots of buyers. So, yeah, sharper yield. Sharper yield. So, there's some great ways to sort of further the upside, but there's some sort of more left to field thing. I guess the sort of seventh step or stage or strategy, you know, is not something that most people would think about, right? And in, in terms of getting greater upside. Yeah. So, reducing costs or creating new incomes via solar panels, it's the big one. Every time the power bills go up, this increases the margin on this type of development. It's not a development, it's really, well, there's two ways to do it. So number one is you just pay for the solar panels yourself and then you deal direct with the tenants. So you've got to then try to get them to pay you instead of the mains. A little bit tricky and it's probably more suitable if you've got a bunch of gross leases where you're paying the outgoing. So gross leases probably make it more of a business case for you to buy the solar panels, own them yourself and do with that. But if you've got net leases where the tenants are paying everything, you are economically better off to lease your roof out to a third-party solar panel company and they'll pay you a percentage of their profit. So, you know, basically it works out. They get their return on money, you know, in about four years on the asset, but then they'll pay a, a lease. And normally the lease is 10 years and it's like a standard lease. Like, so it's another income. So you, you capitalize that income against the valuation on your property. So, you know, if you have a $5,000 new income at 6%, that's 83 grand in, mm. in new income or, or new equity. Plus, you're getting a five grand per annum extra income. The larger the asset, the more power the tenant uses, the, the more solar panels and the more income you'll get from that third-party provider. Um, 
we've set up a company. It's called Rethink Renewables that does exactly this. Have you actually set up a company now that does this? Because yeah, yeah, we spoke about this a year ago and you were like, oh, you weren't convinced and you just hadn't really, you know, you looked at it all and you were still knowing you, like I know you, you just had question marks all over it. So it sounds like you've actually nailed it now. You've worked out how to do it. Yeah, it, it's tricky. Like, so you've got a purchasing power agreement, which is not always accepted by the tenants because it's like they're getting locked into something. So there's not, and sometimes it goes longer than their lease, which doesn't, so you, you've got to deal with like break lease clauses. So there's a fair bit of risk for the business. Mm. The, the reason I, I think it's such a good solution is it just gives every single freehold property owner the chance to make more money for doing nothing. So you're effectively just getting a new lease you're not paying for the solar panels. It's another third-party income, and the third-party income is the key point. That's why you can capitalize that rent at whatever the market rate is in that area. I'm doing it to all my properties, and we can't do it in WA for some reason, but we're looking into it. But yeah, East Coast stuff, it works quite well. And uh, yeah, it's just it's an extra income. It turns the property into green energy, which is good for the tenants, the image of their business as well, like depending on how uh, eco-friendly they want to look, um, but it, it saves them power, like significant amounts too. Like it, initially they might only save 10 or 20% on the mains, but it doesn't increase at the same level. So they might be paying like half the costs of mains next year. Like so it's a real win-win-win. Like the, the, the owner wins because they've got a new income, new equity. The tenant wins because their power is cheaper. And then, yeah, obviously it's just a no one loses in this scenario, and then you're not having to deal with potential increase. The, the main winner, our green friend would say, is that the environment is the winner on the win-win-win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it takes off significant burden on the like big industrial sheds in the city. Think about it; like that's a commodity. That's why I've set this company up. I think it's an absolute waste to have all this massive space, which is in the middle of the city, not used. Instead, they're putting solar panels out in the desert, and they've got to ship it through and you lose all that power through, you know, basically um, you know, friction with the wires. And there's, yeah, if you've got it in the city, you should utilize it and the tenants will directly benefit rather than having to sell it back to the mains because that doesn't work anymore. That the the ratios, the, the amount they'll pay a kilowatt, it's, it doesn't stack. So you have to make your money through the tenant. So you got to make, make it and use it. So keep it localized and I guess sovereign, yep. right, to the asset rather than being a contributor to um you know a wholesale network that's right and yeah like obviously storage and stuff like that's not great at, at the moment so it's and a good another good thing because most commercial tenants work in daylight hours as well so you know you're not having to store it it's just direct and uh yeah it obviously works better in places like queensland compared to tassie but um yeah like there's we're, we're a very sunny lucky country so yeah are you channeling your inner engineer with this one, Scott? Well, I'm not the expert. Though. I'm working with a guy, and he's. We'll get him on the podcast one day. He's. Yeah, a, I can learn about this stuff. It's, but it makes sense, yeah. you know. This is about you're not only maximising cash flow; it's about manufacturing equity, right? And you want to be doing both. Yeah. You know, and and for for those commercial investors who are leveraged and not getting the the positive or well, the cash flow they were once getting, there's other ways to you know squeeze. Is more juice out of the lemon while also increasing his value. It's quite a long podcast, Scott. We've been chatting for hours, it feels like, but um, mate, I always enjoy getting together. Yeah, you too. It's been a little while. We obviously pre-recorded a couple of those other ones before I went overseas, but mm. uh, yeah, no, it's good to catch up back in uh, the country for our next one. And 
I'll get my wife on the the podcast if you'll have her. So we'll. Uh, no, no absolutely. I actually want to. I actually want to. Um, I don't think we've met before. Um, be good to see the actual brains trust of, of that outfit rather than uh, just chatting you all the time. The the, the person it's that the prob- glue together. Yeah. yeah, I think we we had her well, during we did the once, didn't we? Period. Yeah, it would have been like in COVID, like because we're all yeah, locked up somewhere. Yeah, yeah, well, things have moved on. You know, it's like very, very rarely use the word COVID now. Everyone's like not even talking about post-COVID conditions anymore. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, it's just, a memory, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's funny how it plays out. But um, anyway, um, Scott O'Neill, well, thanks for your time. Good to see you. Look forward to catching up again and uh, and we'll cover stuff off. Remember, um, any questions at all, and we get heaps coming through, where's the best way to contact you and your crew, mate? If you've got questions or if they want to send any feedback to us or just to maybe find some time and have a chat with with you or your the people inside your organisation. Um, just Google Rethink Investing and go to the Let's, Let's Talk section. I think Googling is always the easiest rather than remembering emails. But, um, mm. yeah, that'll just directly go back to us, Rethink investing.com.au and uh, yeah keen on any new topics as well for this podcast as well any questions yeah just direct them through and yeah we'll either answer them privately or, or on this podcast so yeah nice one need to chat look forward to it uh, Scott O'Neill Managing Director of uh, Rethink Investing hey, thanks for your time um, we'll see you again next time thanks Phil nice one thanks for tuning in everyone remember to go and uh, have a look at rethinkinvesting.com.au. Uh, any questions there, happy to happy to answer them um, live. That's what we like to do. And we'll do some more stuff moving forward as well. Do some big Q&A sessions. Uh, thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Until then, bye-bye. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned.